0: So, shaky. How's it been with Covid with you mate? It's been a nightmare, hasn't it? <sighs> do
1: you know what? I think that um, so many people have so many different situations and I think that you know you can you can sit and feel bad about the fact we're not allowed to do this and we're not allowed to do that, but I think the the bigger picture is that, you know, this isn't just something that's happening to any one individual, it's happening to to everybody, isn't it? And mm. you know, different people have had, you know, different um, problems with it you know some people have lost family some people have lost friends um, so me having to sit indoors and spend time with my family and help homeschool my kids is that and, a good, be, thing? Well, is that a good thing well I don't know about the homeschooling not, not for my kids it's not but um, <laughs> you know their education's going to suffer massively but have they learned uh, how to ride a motorbike though <laughs> no do you know what though Zach's just started asking I see he? he's actually just asked me if he can have a, another go at most cross you're in a world of trouble well, I don't know if I am, because the last time he had a go, it didn't last five minutes. I said to him, I'm not buying you another brand new bike, because <laughs> the last time I bought him a brand new bike, it just sat in the garage for probably a year and a half, and he never even sat on it. So uh, the fact that he's asked, I'm, I'm relatively happy That's about. Okay. But uh, yeah, Slowly, no, slowly. Step by step.
0: I think ultimately, I think COVID has affected everybody globally. I think when you're looking at the news, it's all bad news. And you think you're seeing the rates going up, and we've had to... Jump through hoops just to do this today. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, your friend's given us this garage to loan, which has got a mighty impressive impressive amount of uh, serious amount of bikes in here. Um, This is your thing, isn't it? I mean, we're sitting in an arena which, yes, I love bikes myself, and I've got a few Ducati's myself, but this is your thing. I mean, motorbikes and shaky burn is, is, is joined at the hip.
1: I mean, where did all this start for you? Do you know what the the, the funny thing about that is, is that I I actually don't know. I don't remember there ever being a time when I didn't want to be a motorbike racer. So when, uh, you know, when I was at school as a kid and, you know, you moved up a class or whatever and the new teacher wanted to know who you are and what your name is and what you're interested in and what you were going to be when you were older, mine was always, um, you know, I'm Shane Byrne, and I'm going to be a motorbike racer. I, I have no idea why. My parents never even had a car license. Between Did you have them. a lot of bicycles when you were a kid? I had some bicycles, yeah. And, and you know, I used to ride around the estate on my BMX, you know, shifting up and down about 20 million gears, pretending I was on a motorbike. And and, and that was me, you know. But, yeah, I have, I have no idea where the thing came from. But trying to get me to focus and, and concentrate on the job in hand, which is this podcast with all these bikes about, <laughs> is pretty tricky. Uh,
0: I must admit, the bike side, bicycle side of things, for me was interesting. I, I was born in the '60s, late '60s, so I'm what 54 now. Now the bike is that
1: your racing age or real age? Because uh, we, we have to have a racing age when we're. Uh, no, that's know, my real racing. age. What well, my racing <laughs> age would
0: be? What 45? You would be. So I remember growing up, and the, my first bike that I remember that vividly stuck in my mind was one I got at Christmas. Was the Chopper. And the gears, then it was the Mark II with the gears in the middle. And I remember coming off it many times and sort of groining myself going down my mum's hill, which was, it was pretty steep to be honest. And that bike itself was a was an amazing bike. Thinking I was like Chips, uh, Eric Estrada, and that, which mm-hmm. is as big. You probably don't remember. You're a little bit younger than me. Um, and it was Chips. I thought I was Chips. We had these little radios on. We were talking to it like a megaphone, yeah. and then putting the lollipop sticks on the on the on the actual spokes. That was the thing. I mean, bicycling was the start, but you took it to motorbikes fairly quickly, didn't you? You went from cycling to motorbikes.
1: Well, I kind of did, yeah. But the, um, the the funny thing is, pretty much like everything in my life, it all came about in a pretty uh, shifty kind of manner. I remember going on um, on holiday to, to Butlins. My parents used to, to take us to Butlins. Um, we used to go to Bognor Regis pretty much every year. And my auntie and uncle would drive down with my cousin and, and we had to go on the train. You know, dad worked at the time for, for British Rail. So we used to get to travel on trains everywhere for free. So we'd rock up at, at Bogner, and uh, I remember them having a, a little motorbike track there with um, little putsch Magnums. And I, you know, whilst, you know, my, my cousin or my sister would be off to the swimming pool or the arcades or whatever, I'd just go and sit up and watch these bikes go around, <laughs> I like absolutely besotted with it all. And luckily enough for me, my my cousin became quite good friends with the with the guys that were were running the the bikes, and I was too young to to be allowed to ride them. But, how old um, were you then? I would have been about five, maybe four Jeez. or five years old, and he got me to to have a go. Um, yeah, they ran alongside me, sort of thing. But I sat on these bikes and, and rode around. Honestly, like I was sold. If I wasn't <laughs> sold before that, I was one hundred percent sold after that.
0: I think I think motorbikes because. My first 4-inch motorbikes, I suppose I was 15, and I, and I bought off, off a guy from an estate not far from me. And it was the, it was the one before the KH, I think it was called the S1-250 Kawasaki, which is three into three. And that was my first. I had it illegally, but I bought it because I stuck it in the garden. It was like <laughs> stuck in the back near the shed. I used to go out and polish it. And I remember the paint where it was terrible. Someone used an aerosol tin, matte black, and just sort of sprayed it. I think it was purple underneath. <laughs> and that was, I used to occasionally sort of go out on the road on it and take it down the road. Legally, I suppose it was my ER50 that changed my life. Because all of a sudden, I was, I think I was 16 at the time. I had a 50cc bike. I was on the road. And I, I it opened up everything for me. It opened up freedom. And the bike represented freedom. Yes, you got used to being cold. I went to North Wales, covered 70 miles in the pouring rain with very little waterproof stuff on, absolutely soaked through. Sick as a pig when I got back. But you know when you're on (laughs) that, and you're doing this speed for like what feels like an eternity, but at the time you think you're doing like 100 miles an hour. You're not. You're doing 30, 32 miles an hour. (laughs) The speed thing for you must have hit you from, if you were five, six years old hitting the first time on a motorized bike, to do what you've done, which is now six times BSP champion, British Superbike champion, um, to take it to that level, did you think then you were thinking, yeah, I want to be a motorbike racer? It, it, was that because of you went on that bike at so young or was that something you had in your mind even earlier? Did I, you watch MotoGP at the time? Were you watching, you know, motorbike racing?
1: No. I, I, listen, I, I, when I say, um, you know, I, I don't remember not remembering, I, I, I mean it, you know, like I, I really you know, I think we all have memories from maybe, you know, two or three years old, you know, you can sort of vaguely remember a couple of things, can't you? But um, yeah, it's almost like this has been kind of pre-programmed in me. And it's funny listening to you talk about the, um, you know, the R50 and, and getting that sense of freedom, because I had a DT50. And I remember, you know, my parents bought it for me, you know, I begged them as all through childhood, I begged them for a motorbike, but <laughs> mum and dad weren't in, a, weren't in a position to make that happen. And you know, when I when I finally got my DT50, we we kept it at my mate's farm for a bit before I was 16, and uh, I remember sneaking up there. It was near Maidstone, so it was quite a way away. But um, I pedalled up to the farm and and took the key to the DT50, like nicked it out of my mum's drawer without telling her, and went and rode this DT50 around the country lanes. And I'd spent, you know, I'd spent years growing up riding you know the BMX that we spoke about right. earlier on and just kind of you know covering the whole of Sittingbourne, in the town where I grew up you know there's not an alleyway or a dirt track or, or whatever that, that I don't know because I just went out all day on my BMX you know every Saturday and Sunday and school holidays were spent playing on the BMX so I took this key and I went up to um I went up near Maidstone and I took that DT50 out and and like yourself it was like oh, my God, now <laughs> I'm free to go anywhere, you know? Everything. And it's it's so Did weird. Did you have
0: other mates on bikes? Because the yeah. big thing for me at the time up north was I was born and raised in the Wirral. So in the Wirral, I was around Wallasey, Birkenhead, you know, and we used to go to the posh bit where Westgate, um, West Kirby, and it was Hoyle, Coldy. Coldy actually was where Daniel Craig's from. He, okay. went to the, he was in the posh area of the Wirral. <laughs> um, but actually... Learning how to ride around there with friends was the big thing for me because it wasn't just me on a the bike. There was six, seven, eight other guys on motorbikes. So there was a bit of a biker gang. And we looked at the other guys who were on the big bikes. And that time it was the GT 750 big bikes. You know, I think looking at them going, oh, I want a big bike one day. And that was the drive for me to, to get your test done, to get on a big bike as soon as possible, and to get more power. Mm. I think you go 50, 125 and then onto whatever you're going to ride, you know. Mm. On legally on the road, I mean. Did you get chance to pass your test, or did you go straight to the track?
1: No, I did. I did do my test. Um, you know, the funny thing is when you when you speak about you know the the whole bike culture, it, that's exactly what it is. It is a culture. You know what what other what other hobbies do you see? You know, do you drive past every car every car driver you see on the road and sort of nod at them or, or give them a little wave or a little wink? Or whatever? it doesn't happen, does it? You know, no. motorcycling. Is such Unless a, you're in a Robin Reliance. Yeah, my granddad had a Robin yeah, Reliance. I, I think that's just laughter. No, 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 no.
0: <laughs> There's a cool thing with the Robin. Actually, there's nothing there cool well. about a Robin <laughs> Let's Listen, be Listen, on, only fools and horses. That's the coolest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. I want one of them. I'd love one of them.
1: <laughs> I'm surprised you've not got one. I know.
0: I'd love one Actually, I'd love an old fools and horses thing. But the thing is I'm about. I'm being Del boy you can be Rodney.
1: <laughs>
0: but the thing the thing is about that there is a community, you're right about biking. And you must notice that when you were going to the races, there was a cult following, not just for which is super biked, but if you look in the car park at these race meets, it's predominantly bikes. It's bikers going to watch bike racing, which is yeah. what, I mean, the coffers must have a field day when they leave the likes of Brands Hatch and Silverstone and everybody's leaving thinking they're all shaky Ben, you know, <laughs> um, they going. you're Nick, you're nicked. I mean, what was it like? I mean, for you to attain your, I mean, your first of your six championships, um, when you got there, You didn't sit back. A lot of people, it's like when you do martial arts. I did martial arts many, many moons ago when I was very young. And I remember watching these lads are going through their black belts. And when he got to black belt, a lot of them sat back. And when we used to fight against some of these lads, the question was, when you go into your sparring competition with someone on a Thursday, do you fight with someone who's brown belt, who's fighting to be black, or do you fight a black belt? Never fight a brown belt because they're the ones that really want it to get to the black. When they got the black, they sat back a little bit. Mm. And you didn't. You you didn't stop at one championship. You wanted to win more.
1: Where did that come from? I think it came from um, wanting to be, you know, ultimately, in some ways, my my career has been fantastic. And, and, you know, I I've literally, literally lived my dream. Um, you know, I consider myself really, really fortunate to to, to be able to sit here and, and share that because how many people start off life and think to themselves, well, you know what, when I'm older, I want to be this and then they get to do it and, you know, they make a living and, you know, it, it becomes it becomes life for you. You know, that's that's been really special and, you know, it's, it's been an honour. But ultimately, I think that the dream was always to be a world champion and, you know, I could potentially return from this injury and win another four or five championships, but unfortunately, six, seven, eight, nine, ten British Superbike championships—you can't go and part-exchange them for no. a world championship. So, is that what you wanted? I wanted to be Do world Do you feel champion. cheated from that? Yeah, the best day of my one of the best days of my life. Because if my wife listens to this and hears me say that the, <laughs> my children being born wasn't the best day of my life, or <laughs> it was whatever, when you got married? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely would be divorce. Um, but no, the, one of the best days of my life was winning the, uh, the two World Superbike races at Brands Hatch in 2003.
0: I saw that. And that's, <laughs> the, that's when you first came on my radar when I watched that 2003. And I saw it fairly... Re- and we've known each other, it feels like, decades now. But I remember watching that fairly recently you joined the world superbike you were a british superbike champion at the time no i hadn't won it yet i was was on route to winning it so you you were doing well in the championship and then you said right you got a wild card to go into the world superbike race at brands hatch against all the other big boys and you thought i'll do this but you won both the races yeah
1: it it was a it was a special day you know for me that day was like um that was like a massive did the other guys see their arse not really, no. And do you know what the funniest thing about the whole weekend was that when I when I turned up, um, that the British Superbike Championship was going really well. You know, we'd won a lot of races already in the season, and I got to the the press event in London before the start of the before the start of the weekend, and the Italian, um, I don't know, press coordinator or whatever for World Superbike, you know ran through the list of all the British riders that were there. You know, you had Neil Hodgson, who went on to be world champion that year, Chris Walker, James Tosland, um, I'm trying to think who else was there. Maybe a couple of foreign guys as well. And, you know, he was giving them all this time and, you know, like absolutely kind of bowing to their every need, if you like. And then it kind of come to me, this wildcard guy that was just turning up for a race for the weekend. And he was like, all right, what's your name? Um, what are you hoping for? And, and that was pretty much <laughs> the extent of the interview. And I was like... You know, I didn't get much time out of that. But then um, the weekend finished, we won both the races and uh, he caught up with me afterwards and was like exactly the same to me as he'd been to them other two guys. And I just thought, yeah, do you know what? I'm coming, sunshine. It's going <laughs> to happen. Um, but yeah, that was a, that was a special day just because I think that I achieved what I wanted to achieve at that level.
0: Yeah. So you won six PSB. Then you did win the. You did. I know you won in 2003. You won two World Superbike races. Now you did you dabble in World Superbike?
1: Yeah. What happened? The, the, the fact that you don't know is <laughs> it goes to show how well it went. It didn't. Uh, it didn't go fantastic, to be honest. I mean, um, at the end of 2008, after I just won my second BSB title. I got the opportunity to, to go to World Superbike, and Troy Bayless was retiring. And it Woo-hoo! Because loo- if yeah. he left, he was pretty on it at the time. He'll yeah, yeah. be racing with Ducati. Yes, well, and it. it looked like I was going to go from you know, the, the British championship winning team straight into Troy's seat. Um, that was what Ducati were talking about, and you know that, that was you know, that was me. That was my dream ticket. But as it turned out, um, Noriyuki Haga got the ride. And Ducati still wanted me to move up, so they said we'll put you in the Sterilgarda team, um, which Max Biaggi and and Ruben Zaus had been riding in um, in 2008. So I was like, right, okay, um, that'll be cool. You know, Max wouldn't have ridden somewhere if it was if it was no good. But it turns out that the um, the Flamini brothers, who used to run the the World Superbike Championship at the time, basically paid a fortune for Max to be in World Superbike and basically paid all the team's budget. So when I got there. Um, the money y- dried up. The money dried up very, yes. very quickly. Um, my teammate didn't even get to, to make a start. I think he'd done a, a practice session at Portimao with me and then, um, then was basically told, look, we haven't got the money. So how did you do? I
0: mean, for someone that's just dominated in, in an event, in a, in a championship, to go into World Superbike, that must have frustrated you. Because yes, to win a championship, you have to, ha- you have to be very good. And you are good. That's without question. But you need the right equipment as well. We know that even from that. We look at Lewis Hamilton. Would Lewis Hamilton win a championship now if he was in a Ferrari? Probably not. So it comes down to the vehicle and the person. You have to have that sync. And the champions are the ones that manage to jump ship to the right team at the right time. Mm. You were just unfortunate. You, you didn't have that opportunity with, with World Superbike.
1: Well, the really strange thing was the um, the weekend... Or the, the the final race weekend of the year in 2008 was at a brand new circuit at the time called Portimao in uh, in Portugal, mm. and I'd watched it on TV and on TV it looked absolutely savage and you know I watched Max and Ruben destroy pretty much every motorbike that um, you know Stelgarda had, and I remember turning up for my first test on the on the Tuesday after the the World Superbike Championship had finished, and. I think we had like a two-day test, and this bike was literally like held together with gaffer tape, and <laughs> do you know, what I mean, it was it was such a mess. And the and the team owner at the time, Marco Porciani, was like, "Shaky, I'm so sorry. You know, this is this is not our normal standard, but Rubens just destroyed everything this weekend, and uh, you know, this is this is literally all we've got left." And I was like, "No, oh, it's cool. You know, obviously, I I I want it to be better, but you know, I just want to ride the bike and get a feel for the team and see what happens." But you know that um that post season test, if you like, I ended up fastest. I was quicker than everybody, and then we had another one at the start of two thousand and nine, and I was fastest at that again um and then it all went downhill from there really so wow, <laughs> yeah, very strange.
0: so you got out of that, went back into b s b yeah now going back, you did do motor G p yep. now you were the, with a with a um and k t m and k t m yeah, KTM. of course now that didn't go as well as you expected was that again you didn't have the kit you didn't have the right kit to do what you wanted to do
1: i think that when you when you get presented an opportunity right and you want to be a world champion i just won a, a british superbike championship in 2003 and you know aprilia approached me and said would you like to come to the last round of MotoGP gp in valencia so i was like why not you know, I'm gonna have a look and see what's going on so i went down there and and in essence they offered me a ride and they offered me what was a three-year deal. They said, look, the bike that Colin and Noriyuki Haga have been riding is... Haga is, seems to follow you, doesn't he? He does. <laughs> he ended up being my teammate, ironically oh, really? enough. Yeah, he done a couple of rounds in, in BSB with me as my teammate in 2012, I think it was. But um, yeah, I I ended up kind of taking the ride. Um, we signed like a three-year deal um, because I think many riders from, from the UK had... Kind of got to MotoGP before or, or 500s before, but only on a year deal, and there's no way that you're going to get there and do the job that you need to do to to be able to stay. There's too much to learn. So when I got offered, um, the first year was basically a brand new bike. It was supposed to have been. I was supposed to test the one that they just finished on, and then I was supposed to have a new bike for the following year. And then the second year, they were like, "But then we need we need results. You know, if you want to stay for the third year, we need results." And I thought, so. For the first time ever, a British rider has been offered like a three-year deal. Um, this is not some pie in the sky. I'll oh, just come and fill a gap for a season. This is a proper, a proper offer. So I had that, or I could have gone and road for Ducati in the American Superbike Championship, the AMA Championship at the time. Yeah, and I thought to myself, you know. I've I've just won a, a superbike championship. I want to I want to keep going forward. I want to be a world champion. I can't be a world champion in America, same as I can't be a world champion in in British superbike. So, I took the MotoGP deal, and then <laughs> it seemed like you know five minutes later we got maybe a third of the way into the season, and they were like, "Oh, Piaggio's brought Aprilia. Um, oh, they're not right. going to they're not going to do MotoGP next year." And I was <laughs> like, "Oh, great, <laughs> fantastic." So you you you've
0: done two moves. Do you regret those two moves now? If you would you have done anything different?
1: Um I don't think I would to be honest. I think that um throughout my career there's been probably two or three kind of key mistakes I make but you know we're all um we're all experts once we've we've made a mistake, aren't we? You know. Um you know it's funny how certain life situations get get put upon you and for the first time you you kind of deal with them as you would but the second time you know, you're that little bit wiser, and yeah. you kind of understand, you know, what you need to do and what you don't. Well,
0: you say that, and that's the thing you see because you say that the, you know, you learn from your mistakes. You become a professional. You understand that. Now, when it comes to accidents, and this is this is the this is the key thing. If you're in a car well, you saw recently the Grosjean crash, the Formula One where he went under the barrier. The halo actually saved his life, and you know, the following two weeks he was back in a car testing again. He was away, you know, doing lap records again. Now. On a bike, you come off a bike, and I've seen MotoGP bikes—you know, GP riders—jump off at 170 mile an hour, go onto the back, and then roll and jump up, and then run, try and get the bike up. Going, oh, me bike, me bike. You've had a few spills in your time. I think it's part, of course, with being a motorcycle racer—you're pushing the limits to see what the bike and yourself can do. Now, you're at the moment in a situation where you had a nasty accident. Um, you were six times champion. You were probably going to win the next championship as well. It was all lined up. Um, what happened?
1: I fell off. You fell off. <laughs> now, this was um, a test, wasn't it? It was at a test, yeah. But you know what? It, it, you, you hit the nail on the head. Um, and you say that you know we learn from our mistakes or whatever. But ultimately, the way I, the way I look at life is, you know, a chef is always going to cut his finger. Mm. It's, it's, it's inevitable. And an electrician is always going to get an electric shock at some point. And a motorbike racer is always going to get hurt at some point. You know, it, it is inevitable. I mean, I've been fortunate enough to walk away from some monumental crashes with, with literally n- not a mark on me. Mm. Um, but this, the, the one t- um, crash that I had that, that actually hurt me did do a, a pretty good job of it, you know. And it was literally a test day, um, a small mistake. At Snetterton? Yes, at yeah. Snetterton, a small mistake going into turn three. Um, engine braking perhaps just a little bit tight on the bike. It came around sideways, put me on the grass. Um, you know, slick tires and and grass don't really don't work that well together. No, no. Um, and an altercation, a head-on altercation with a you know with a, a crash barrier, and and that was me done. Um, you know, it was a it was a big crash. And Do you
0: remember anything about the the crash itself? Oh, I remember everything.
1: Yeah, Do you? yeah. I remember that the weirdest thing um, was that you know, I was trying to, trying to make the corner and trying to scrub off speed. So I probably went onto the grass at about 130 odd miles an hour, I think it was. And I had, you know, however far the runoff was before the, before the barrier and was still trying to, you know, to to make the corner. And when it became obvious that it wasn't going to happen, it was like, right, okay, plan B, I'm going to have to jump off. But when I jumped off, you know there was there was no more room. I was still probably doing forty or fifty miles an hour and and I literally kind of slid and done the splits, but went head first into the into the barrier and that impact um, broke the the top of my neck and literally sort of shattered my spine and broke my chest and broke my sh- collarbones and my ribs, and literally just kind of squashed me up if you like but I remember laying on the floor and the and the weirdest the weirdest description I can give you is you know like the the aperture of a of a motorbike crash helmet so yeah. you've got like the the bit that you can see out of yeah it's like I could kind of hear what was going on I could hear doctors and medics around me and stuff like that but my my vision was like the the dashboard of of one of these beautiful bikes in here you know so i could basically just see all these numbers and dials and hear all these alarm bells going off and stuff like that and warning lights flashing and and you know it was the it was the oddest and weirdest uh weirdest thing because i knew i was in pain i could hear myself screaming but all i could really i could hear these medics talking just in like i don't know somewhere in the distance but I just recall all these alarm bells going off, and it was like I guess my my body's way of saying to me, "This time, you you, you really messed up," you know. So, that it's a difficult
0: thing for it to understand from someone that, you know. For you see accidents, you thinking, "How did you walk away? How did you survive an impact as bad as that?" Now, obviously, the people that were closest to you, Petra, uh, your wife, and she came up to the hospital to to see you. How have you now dealt with that and come to terms with the fact that obviously you haven't ridden now this will be three years this year you won't you wouldn't have ridden a motor i say you haven't ridden a motorbike but you did ride a motorbike i you rode a motorbike with me yes yes um <laughs> and it was quite a nice bike as for, well. for
1: another little project that we're trying to get together as well yeah um you know i've been i've been so so broken Um, you know you you mentioned Petra and you mentioned that trip to the hospital you know she was um, she was told oh you know he's just cracked a couple of ribs or something he'll be fine and you know typical typical Petra she was like right okay I'll get his stuff together I'll come up I'll pick him up I'll take him home Two weeks, right? Okay, he's got two weeks. He has got a few cracks. Yeah, no, he'll be fine for the next race. You know, because because that's how how life is as a as a professional racer. You know, you're you're always thinking about the next race, and if you hurt yourself, right, I'll break a wrist, oh shit, that means ten days off the bike, and mm. I'm gonna have to get some laser done, and you know, get myself fixed back up, and get back out, and and you know, hopefully, be strong enough to to race in, in the, the second weekend's time. But she um, she arrived at the hospital and was greeted by my, my crew chief, Giovanni, who had a rather worrying look on his face by all accounts. And um, Petra was like, well, where is he? And uh, Giovanni was like, uh, um, you know, he, he's just away having some tests. And she's like, he's crapped a couple of ribs. What's wrong with him? You know, he needs to <laughs> get himself together. But um, the doctor who looked after me and and performed my operations um, then came out and and took her to one side and sort of ran through this list of um, the injuries that that I'd sustained. And, you know, the the level of severity was was getting worse as as it went. And uh, I think that the doctor kind of signed off the, the initial conversation with Petra saying, look, if we can get him through this first 24 hours and save his life after that, you know, we'll, we'll think about his mobility and and whether or not he'll be able to walk or if he's going to be paralysed or whatever else. So, so at the time, she didn't even know whether you are going to live. No, and wow. she didn't, and and she'd gone there on the on the premise that I'd, I'd cracked a couple of ribs, you know. So she's gone there absolutely fuming, thinking, "Oh yeah, why so stupid? Why do that on a practice <laughs> day sort of thing?" And not realising that, you know, I'm laying there kind of half dead. And one of the one of the hardest things for a few, we had to wait. I think maybe four or five days before they do the operation. Mm. And um, she walked down to the operating theater with me and uh, I, I must've been quite restless and, and whatever else and was wriggling my toes and, you know, trying to move my legs about and shake my legs about. And she's like, just be still, just be still. You're going for your operation. What are you doing? I said, they might not work after this operation. <laughs> I want to get every last little wiggle I can. So uh, yeah, it's been, it's been very, very tough.
0: So since the operation, obviously, you're you're fine uh, in the sense of you're walking you're talking and you're fully mobile um although metal you've, you have metal inside you as well i oh, well, certainly barry sheen and a lot of the other X racers did as well mm. but where are we now with you i mean are you in a situation where you've you've, you've had nearly three years now of recoup- uh, recouping and also surgery uh, to get yourself back into as, as best shape as you could, because you, you look fit and he- fit and healthy. I know you you cycle every day, you keep yourself super fit, uh, but where are you yourself?
1: I feel um, in some ways like a, a young guy trapped in an old broken body, and I think that we've we've kind of I've approached this in a in a much different way to to any other injury than I've ever had. Because you know, you say, "Oh, you cycle every day." I do, but I sit in my garage on a turbo trainer because even I can't crash a turbo trainer. You know, um, you know, when you've got, um, when you've got your surgeon telling you that if you slip down a step and fall on the base of your spine, you know, it could be, it could be all over, and your and your mobility could be gone. You know, I've I've literally walked on eggshells now for for three years, and I find that very difficult because if I'm honest with you, you know, I've perhaps had. Nowhere near enough regard for my body over the last twenty odd years as a professional racer. You know, y- your body didn't matter. Your body was just um, your body was just a tool that al- allowed your you know, you to do the job that, that you had to do, you know, your heart, your head or whatever that, you know, your body was the was the vehicle, if you like. So as long as the body could be repaired and, and patched back up again, you know, we were we were good to go. But this time, you know, being being so broken and and finding myself in a situation where just the, the stupidest of little slips or Yeah, you imagine imagine taking one of these bikes out on a on a gravel driveway and and sort of lose your footing and fall over and the thing falls on top of you and then that's it. You're never going to get back up again because you know your your legs are going to go to sleep. You know, I don't. How does that
0: make you feel though? I mean, you're you're a racer in your heart,
1: and and that's the problem. That that is the problem. You know, that's why I said it's like um, it's like being trapped inside another body. You know, I've been so so careful because Mm. of the extent of the damage that I've done this time that i want my I want my surgeon to to say to me right you've done everything you can do you know, and what will be will be then because that's what i'll what i'll have to to live with you know but if i'd have um if i'd have gone at this all a bit willy nilly and gone out and fell off a push bike or done and done a track day and fell off at the track day and then and put myself back and then the doctor said to me oh if you just didn't do that you might have you know what I mean yeah
0: yeah But but how I mean I know you do Eurosport now and you comment comment you commentate on a lot of the races you know World Superbike and British Superbike. That must frustrate you,
1: mate. It breaks me. <laughs> Honestly, must, must it, it breaks me. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's lovely to be involved in the sport, and, and I'm sorry to to jump in, but it but it destroys me. Luckily for me, um, you know the the Eurosport people are are fantastic. You know I get on really really well with them, and it's like it's like going to work with a bunch of friends, and you can't ask for much more than that. You know I'm in the paddock, so I get to see all the people that I've had to race against, and you know there's a there's a lot of um, respect from everybody in the paddock. Um, so it's nice to be in and around the people that I've spent a lot of years with. But when you, when you watch the guys go off the start line on a sunny day and you think to yourself, flipping hell, nowhere near as quick as I was two or three years ago, I'd still be winning now. You know, (laughs) what on earth am I doing standing here talking about it? It, It's difficult.
0: But I mean, Eurosport is one thing. So you you still feel a part of, you know, racing as a whole. And I know looking around the garage, there's, um, there is a Scott Redding, um, pbm bike there and now scott essentially took over from you yeah. you know he, he took your seat he went on to win uh the bsb championship on that bike how does it feel looking at that bike over there because that essentially that's your
1: bike well giovanni my the, the crew chief i spoke about before he was actually the um the head of development of that bike so him and gigi delinia worked on that together and um, by all accounts, you know, Giovanni bought the bike with Michele Pirro to the last round at Brands Hatch the year before it came out, um, so in two thousand and eighteen. And he was like, We made this for you <laughs> and, and honestly, I looked at the thing and and it sounds it sounds perhaps stupid or I don't know what what you'd call it, but it, it literally brought tears to my eyes because you know, when you want something as badly as, as I want to, to race, you know, to see what all of your hard work was done for, you know, the next chapter right mm. in front of your eyes and know that you can't actually ride it. You know, when, when Michele fired it up and rode out of the garage, honestly, <laughs> I, was, I was like a blubbering, uh, a blubbering idiot. I couldn't get myself together, but I don't know. I guess that the passion, the drive and the determination, you know, you see something like that there and you think, you know what? We could wheel that out of this garage. We could go testing for the for the winter. And there's every chance, I, I firmly believe, there's every chance we could go to, to BSB and rock up at round one and win.
0: I know you could. But the thing is, you still hold many, many lap records of circuits in this country. Still, to mm. this day. And by quite a margin, too. <laughs> um, I was quite good at one point. <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, now I'm just a broken no, older. No, no. To be
0: honest, if I was to say to you, being... Wave this wand, you're absolutely fine. You could jump on that bike over there and go and smash a couple of lap records within a week of getting back up to speed again.
1: I think, quite possibly, yeah. Um, and it's 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 a it's an odd feeling because I don't know how I feel about the. I th- I think as a as an individual as a as a human being we spend way too much time looking for recognition from others. Right? I had a dream of being a world champion. That's that's all I was interested in, and you are possibly right. Possibly we could take that bike and we could go back and in, you know, a couple of days of testing or whatever we'd be really fast. But I'd be fast too. I love the
0: fact you bring in we.
1: <laughs> me and my mate Yeah, Paul. I probably would, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> On the straight. Yeah. What, what I mean is, um, if I could come back, um, I'd be coming back to, to do more British superbike. And whilst that's not to be sniffed at, it's still not going to make me a world champion. Mm-hmm. And I did come... Cheeky, you're six times champion. Yeah, I know, but like I Shaky, said... Cheeky, you're six <laughs> times champion
0: and still hold lap records today
1: yes but i want to be world champion and none of those six equal a world championship and and that's the longest That that's the harsh reality is that you know as much as i've loved my time racing and and really enjoyed the the, the, the career i've had i still feel in some ways like i failed because i didn't achieve the the target that i wanted to achieve so if came back right now and if we went back to to racing bsb it's still not going to be for that world championship and whilst i'm only 22 years old <laughs> um <laughs> um you know nobody's going to give me a, a factory ride in in world superbike um that's going to give me a chance we gonna to, have to make a team then aren't we yeah exactly we'll
0: have to speak to the guy who owns this and get that one off <laughs> the. Spot. And exactly p- use p- that one? We'll <laughs> fire some
1: up and uh <laughs> and away we go but I'd I'd love to I'd love to to be able to measure myself in a world championship. I mean, there were times for sure, um, and this is taking nothing away from anybody in world superbike. But there were times in world superbike where, you know, we'd be racing in BSB, and I'd be looking at world superbike and thinking to myself, every one of you guys I've, I've beaten, you know, mm. um, it's just that unfortunately I rock up at Knockhill whilst you rock up at Phillip Island, and and you get to call yourself a world champion, and I have to call myself a British champion, yeah. and. A British champion isn't anything to be sniffed at, but it's not my world champion I've seen
0: your cups in your house. I've never seen anything like it. (laughs) I mean, I've been fortunate enough to, went up to PBM, and um, I looked around a couple of their rooms, I mean, literally a couple of their warehouses, and they are full of cups and trophies. A lot of them are yours. You Mm. know, uh, they're the trophies that they got for you. Mm. Uh, And also there's a 67 Ducati, Sitting there, and I remember when I went up the stairs, and it sits at the top of the stairs. And as I walked up, I got, and I went, "Is that uh, Shaky Ben's party?" And he went, "Yeah." I went, "Oh wow, a beautiful looking machine." Mm-hmm. And
1: I think, "Are you happy?" I don't. I don't know how to how to answer that. In in life right now, I'm I'm quite happy. Um Contented is maybe yeah. The right I think. Word. Content, yeah, I'm content. But you know, I'm I'm content with where I'm at. Um, but I'll never be content of where where I should be. Because do you know what? If if you feel we came cheated? back right now, do you yeah, feel cheated. Not cheated, but if I came back right now and if we made this team and and I became a world champion. That wouldn't be enough either. No, no, because you
0: know, you're the next stage. You want to be a champion.
1: Yeah, and and it will never ever end. But am I happy? Yeah, of course I'm happy. I've got a beautiful wife. I've got two beautiful children. I'm I'm relatively healthy. Um, and yeah, I'm I'm surrounded by some some very very nice people. So, yeah, I I couldn't possibly say I'm unhappy. There's people in far far worse situations than me, but. Am I content with what I achieved in in racing? No, I never I
0: never will be. But have you I ever met a, an ex champion that is?
1: Well, I don't think I've ever asked a question, to be honest. I and think you and, should. Well I maybe.
0: Go and ask Randy Mimola and go and ask any of the other guys that used to race and say, Are oh, you ca- go and ask Casey Stoner? Because Casey did what he did. He won his championship and then bowed out pretty much. Did I a bit of work with Repsol and then bad out, said, that's enough for me.
1: Yeah. Well, Casey's Casey's um Casey's a phenomenon, isn't he? You know, he was probably the most talented person ever to sit on a motorbike in you my opinion. He's said this before. I, I believe Is it. Is he? Yeah, I think so. I think that um I think we've been robbed of some fantastic battles over the years, you know. You imagine if you could have had the I don't know, the, the Rossi versus Dewan on on two stroke five hundreds, or you could have had the Casey versus Marquez, perhaps on on you know on the on the low term MotoGP bikes. You know, mm. there's been some some battles that haven't quite crossed over. Where we um, where we
0: could meet though, where we could come eye to eye. Uh, I've got MotoGP game, MotoGP on my Xbox. Should we Moto- tell
1: everybody what you did? Should we tell everybody well, yeah, how yeah, much you destroyed you my see, life? Well, no, what I did was uh, <laughs> for the, for everyone that doesn't know.
0: I remember I got the game MotoGP. You had it. You got it on PlayStation. Now on the game itself, there is a challenge which is you on the MotoGP Aprilia, and you've got to beat one of the other races. You've got to go round this lap, yeah, you've got to and you get gold, silver, silver and, and bronze. bronze, and there's yeah. times. That's it. So I went round and I was practicing, practicing, I couldn't even get close to bronze. It yeah, but ridiculous. I saw a
1: video of you and you were useless.
0: Well, no. Well, no, like, yeah, I know. But the thing is, I was trying, <laughs> I was trying, I was trying. And I couldn't get, I couldn't break, I couldn't even get a medal. It was ridiculous. And I thought, yeah. this is, this is, this is your fault. This is Shaky's fault. So I went online to YouTube. I actually, no, asked, t- no I asked you first, didn't I? And you I said, what's your lap what's time? Your so I started playing it, right? And I <laughs> yeah, put this said, lap
1: time down and it was like a gold time, wasn't it? It was, it yeah. was really quite fast. And then about, I don't know, a few days later, maybe a week later, wasn't it? You did yeah. it. He sent me a picture message of a lap time that he'd done as me. Yeah on my Aprilia around Magello, yeah. and I was like oh, I'm just going to smoke him no problem <laughs> I got back on the game and I must have played it for like two days straight and I right. couldn't get within two temps at this time and then about uh, probably two months after you, you did leave you me hanging for a bit you did yeah like you <laughs> destroyed my God, life I knew you were in your, I was in your head <laughs> in my head you was in my whole body <laughs> but, but what
0: I'd done was I went on YouTube and found this champion guy who'd been around and videoed snapshot his is, is final time and just just sent that to you and said, look what I've just done. And you went unbelievably crazy. So you did spend days and days trying to break the record of this
1: champion. Mate, you destroyed me, honestly. <laughs> I was mentally destroyed. I, I played the thing so much. And I, I could literally get to within about two temps and, and that was it. And I just thought, how can he go from that video that I saw of him playing to, to being in this fast. He's got to have some cheat. There's got to be some, there's got to be something he's doing. But uh, yeah, when you told me, I felt much, much better about it.
0: I think where we are at the moment during COVID now 2021, and I think where we are now it's, it's cold outside, you know, it's not warm. The roads are wet, there's floods, there's snow, there's all sorts. Everyone's miserable. Everyone's locked in as a biker myself. And I want to see you, you know, on a bike, whether it be on the road or on a track. You know, for me, I'd like to see you go riding with you again. And, you know, in a couple of months' time, it'll be March, spring. I think the psyche of the country with the with the vaccine going out everywhere, people start feeling better generally. Everyone will be getting back to work as much as possible. Um, me and you, get out on the bikes, go for a coffee somewhere, a bit of a bike mix, there's always a little bit of a... There's always a little bit of murmuring and happy smiles when you turn up to a bike meet, and we sit and have a coffee and just look at the bikes. That's where you must be happy now.
1: Yeah, I, I'd, I'd, I would actually really enjoy that. Um, I want to, I want to ride. You know, I, I, I feel like I was you know, everybody is put on this planet for a reason. And I feel my reason was to, was to ride bikes because if it was to do anything else, then it would have been, you know, that, that I've been pursuing all these years. You know, I've been very fortunate, as I said, and, and I'm hoping that, you know, the the time that I've spent on bikes and playing in cars or whatever will stand us in good stead. And, and, you know, we can make something of that from, from here on in. Um, but yeah, to, to just go out and ride out with some mates and, you know, have a giggle and, Get there I th- and i think it'll help i think yeah. it'll
0: help i think it'll help your feeling of just being on two wheels again with a with the motor mm. and just to get out there and enjoy it and see something of what we have to do well, <laughs> to I, go and watch you race
1: <laughs> i think that um i think there's some really cool stuff that, that we could do with you as well because you know i know how much of a, of a petrol head you are i want to do it some track days exactly and and i think I think that could be super cool, you know. I think that you know we could we could take a few bikes and and just go and have a play because you know riding on the road is is one thing, but you know there's stuff coming the other way. There's cat eyes, exactly, there's yeah, diesel no. spills, there's, there's bricks there's on the road, bricks, there's, there's sp- curbs, there's lampposts. You know, there's all this all this stuff that is really going to hurt you if you if you make a little mistake. Um, whereas on the racetrack, you know, as you know from from racing cars, mm. everything's consistent. You know, the the tarmac's consistent. You know, the corner's going to be the same lap in lap out you know and you get to work a lot on your on your style or your technique or you know we'll be able to we'll be able to ride around together and for me without being disrespectful to you it'll be blatantly obvious straight away of course quite a few things that, that I'll see that, that you can do better. Yeah. That, and that, that's
0: where I want to be. Exactly. See, I, I was lucky enough. I so you
1: will be my teammate then if well we yeah, you absolutely. <laughs> I have,
0: I was thinking, you know, I was thinking I've never ridden a MotoGP bike, but I have. And I'd tell you which one it was. I did a did a program called Racing Legends. And it was on John Surtees. You know, he was now left us. And for me, he was a god. To do what he did in a Ferrari on F1, win world championship in an F1 car and seven championships on a bike on an MV Augusta. (laughs) I think for me, I remember the day I woke up really excited. I'd spoken to John McGuinness, who we both know. And John had given me some uh, heads up about what it was like driving around the Isle of Man. And I'd said... I'm doing this program about John because uh, John did the TT as well and won the TT and I was going to be racing his 1959 championship bike. I went to Brands Hatch. John was there. They wheeled it out. It still looked like normal road tires on. They didn't have slicks. Mm-hmm. Jumped on this bike. He pushed me off. I think then he was in the late 70s, early 80s. Pushed me off. I go around. Pull in after three or four laps. What got me, everything was on the opposite side. Gears were on this side, they were going up, not down, down, and up. I'm going, what? (laughs) And it took me a couple of laps to get into it. And then he pulled me in and he said, What revs were you doing when you crossed the line at Brands? There was no one else on the track. I said, About 9,000. He's good. I know you're pushing it. Right. (laughs) So I was off again. And
1: you're pushing this invaluable piece of machinery (laughs) that's underneath you. (laughs) I was. And it was.
0: For me, it, it, it was a real feeling of nostalgia for, for John to see the bike going around, but also that, and it was not a slow bike. For a 1959 bike, that was quick. Mm. I couldn't never be in a situation where thinking, you look at the modern bikes now, and the times when you race and how quick these machines are, I don't think anyone really appreciates how fast you went. And the life that you've led so far, and I don't think it's over. I mean, you're a racer in your heart, and you always will be for the rest of your life. I think um, you have an amazing family. You have kids. I think you're very lucky. Um, I think you're very lucky after the accident, to be honest, to be even sitting there. I, mean, I think what you've been through, mentally as well, you nothing. I've got nothing but appreciation for what you've done and uh, and applaud you for what you've done. Your fight and spirit to get to where you are now is is amazing. I don't think it's over for for, for Shane Byrne.
1: I don't think it's over for Shane Byrne at all either. But I think that um it's a bit of a step by step thing you know yeah. when you when you have constant reminders every single day you know when sometimes you know as personal as it sounds when you can't do a number two for <laughs> ten days or when number ones don't work and you have to you have to make them work artificially and stuff like that, you know there's mm. so many little um so many little niggles um and so many i I guess they're not little niggles they're massive problems but you you deal with them as little niggles because you know one big problem is one big problem but if you break it down into lots of little ones it's much easier to cope with so i try to to break them all down and just treat it like ah so number one don't work today right okay well let's fix that by doing this or whatever and if i can't have a number two well then we'll we'll have to to think of a way of of you know inducing that if you like and then And then that will happen. And I think breaking stuff down and turning it into little problems makes it much, much easier to deal with. So yeah, those, those little reminders are the things that I think keep me really respectful of where I'm at. You know, I'm, I'm so happy to be here. I'm so happy to, you know, to be amongst these bikes, to be chatting with you, to be, to be doing this full stop. You know, it's like a, a dream case scenario for me, but the little constant reminders are, are there to say, right, okay, whilst I'd love nothing more right now than to <laughs> to jump out, perhaps not in the wet, because it, does look, it looks clean. a bit horrible outside. Let's give it a couple of months. Yeah, it, 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 will be, uh, it will be great fun, but I think I'll be a lot more respectful and a lot more appreciative of, of the, the situations that I find myself in because of the life experience yeah. that I've had.
0: I remember my mother had a, a bad accident. I was 21, big car accident. My nan, my granddad, my brother, My mum was quite badly injured, broke her neck in two places. I remember you mentioned that. Um, And it it was really tough, I think, for the whole family to watch her go through that and to be trying to help her, but you don't quite know what to do. How has it been for Petra um, in particular about looking after you and nurturing you? And for you both as a couple, how have you dealt with this? You know, this whole after accidents you know getting over things mentally as well
1: i think it's very very difficult um you know my wife is a is a beautiful lady and she's the probably the most caring person that 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 you could ever meet you know so um overprotective massively um but i guess you know when you find yourself in a situation where you where you have everything you want and it's nearly taken away from you, you know, you, you perhaps tighten up even more. Mm. So the day, for instance, I remember being picked up from hospital when I left hospital. Um, I got flown back to a little airfield really close to my house. Petra picked me up and she put me in the car. And, you know, I had this big scaffolding thing on my head, bolted into my body and, and whatever else. And I went home and... She said to me, "Right, I need to go and get the kids from school. They they didn't know I was coming home, so I kind of sort of sat on this sofa with these um, it's a halo. It's called, yeah. um, you know, the halo bolted in my head and, and whatever else. And I and I sat there, and it was like, I'd been out of hospital. Well, probably the the forty odd minute helicopter flight and and the five minute drive to the airfield, uh, and I'd been sat on this chair all on my own. It was my first time sat there thinking." oh my God, you know, this is like, this is me now <laughs> walking around with a mobile phone signal on my head. Do you know what I mean? I'm a big yeah. master or whatever. Um, what do I do now? And my, the, the, the really weird thing about the the getting over it was that I heard the front door open when Petra picked the children up. And, um, you know, I heard Petra and the kids talking and, and I so badly wanted to like, to, I'm home, I'm home, but I didn't. Um I stayed quiet and I heard Petra say, oh, you want to see all the cards Dad's had turn up today. There's a mountain of them in the front room. Go and have a look at all the get well soon cards he's got. And I heard Lily say something like, when's daddy coming home, mum? When can he come home? Or something like that. And she said, just go and see the cards. And, and they opened the door and I, I couldn't turn around because I, I, you know, I was kind of bolted rigid. So I, I sort of sat looking away from my back towards them and they came in and, and, Sort of they were like daddy <laughs> and and I kind of lifted my arms and and then I realized that I couldn't actually cuddle them anyway and and that was like whilst it was a beautiful, like passionate, lovely moment it 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 almost broke me at the same time because i I just couldn't hold them you know this this brace was on me, and i and yeah. I, I wanted nothing more than to to squeeze them both and say Daddy's home, it's all going to be okay, you know everything's going to be all right, but I, I physically couldn't I couldn't do it yeah um and then I think, leading on from that you know for for Petra, it's been a case of you know laying next to me, you know we've been through so many different types of pillows and all sorts <laughs> of different stuff, and you know she's had to shower me and you know she's had to do all sorts of stuff that that perhaps your your wife shouldn't have to do not until you're about eighty odd years old and you're <laughs> completely <laughs> incompetent of doing it for yourself, but I think it's brought us closer too you know um I appreciate her so much more um you know, we appreciate what we have so much more. And, and like I said to you at the beginning of the show, you know, this is why it's, it's so, so difficult to, to feel down or to feel upset about the lockdown, about coronavirus, or about COVID or whatever, because I feel so fortunate to be a part of this world now anyway. Do you yeah. know what I mean? No matter how bad it gets, you know, as long as you're here and you're healthy and you've got your family around you, I think that, you know, we can all cope with whatever.
0: So that's your main advice. Family, tight, keep it working. And everybody works as a team.
1: I think so. I think that's the way forward.
0: I don't blame you, mate. It's perfect.